we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 8. It's all good. I am hyped up on caffeine. I'm good to go. So all I need is for you guys to be engaged with me and we'll be good, all right? So if I start nodding off, you know, Mason, you can throw your flip-flop at me and we'll call that good, all right? So you guys good? You ready to go? 2 Samuel chapter 8, open your Bibles there. Title of the message today, Living on Purpose. Living on Purpose. You know, you know the saints said three types of people in the world. Those that make things happen, those that watch things happen, and those who ask, what happened, right? And, uh, and last month, the U.S. Army, along with Lockheed Martin, working together, they made something very cool happen. Um, they designed a laser weapon system that can melt a car's engine block from over a mile away. In my mind, that is pretty cool. When you can blow stuff, stuff up with a beam of light from over a mile, that's making something happen. And, you know, we live in the 21st century. We all get laser weapon systems. Lasers, the basic concept is that you, it's, it's concentration of light that produces a powerful outcome. That really, in essence, is what a laser is. And there's a similar idea when we come to the things of God. Paul was talking to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 and, 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 and 6, especially in chapters 5 and 6. He's talking to them about the urgency of walking in light. And, and as he's, you know, just introducing this concept of, look, the, the needfulness of walking in the light, he, he puts out this concept that there's a lot of people that walk in darkness, that are essentially sleepwalking. And, you know, sleepwalking inherently can be pretty dangerous. I don't know if you've ever read news stories about sleepwalking, but, you know, there's some pretty crazy stuff that happens to people. I mean, there was a gal back east. They found her dead in her alley outside of her apartment. She had sleptwalked out onto her patio uh, of a, you know, multi-story apartment building, fell to her death. Another gal in the UK, they found her on top of a 150-foot crane where she had, just in sleepwalking, climbs, you know, climbs a crane up 150 feet. I mean, crazy stuff. And so spiritually speaking, there are people that sleepwalk through life. And, and what Paul is telling the Ephesians, he's saying, look, wake up. You know, wake up, arise you who sleep, you know, arise from the dead. Christ will give you light. And, and so he goes on to talk about all the stuff that happens to us when we wake up and we walk according to the light. He talks about husbands and he talks about wives and he talks about children and he talks about employees and he talks about employers and, and it just, just the radical stuff, how your life radically changes when you walk according to the light and you don't walk in darkness. And so in our text today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the powerful outcome in David's life when he concentrated on the light that God had given to him. And the big idea of the message today is what happens when we, you and me, live out God's plan for our life. And we're going to see how uh, living out God's plan impacted David, how it impacted his work, how it impacted his worship, how it impacted his witness and his wardship. And so we're going to look at all of those things today. We're going to jump right into it. First point, if you're taking notes, you can write it down. David's work. This is what happened when David lived out God's plan for his life, radically impacted David's work. Second Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. After this, you want to underline that? We'll come back to that. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Metheg Emah from the hand of the Philistines. Now, another word for this town that he took is Gath, and this is the capital city 
of the Philistines. It's kind of a big deal. If you'll recall, when David fought uh, the, the Philistines and he fought Goliath and beat Goliath, Goliath's hometown is from Gath. It is Gath, the capital city. So this is a big deal. And what's happening here is we're beginning to read about David's conquest. He's become king. He's ascended to the throne. And in this chapter, we're going to read about over and over and over and over again how he's conquering, defeating enemies that have been enemies of Israel for an extended period of time. These are enemies that have surrounded them and that have stayed around, even though they have small skirmishes and and victories of battles, they're still enemies that are around. And now what's happening in David's life is he is kicking butt and taking names. And he's really beginning to have incredible victory. Now we started off the verse here with after this. And of course the question is after what? Well, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, what we saw was that David had an incredible desire to build the temple of God. There he is, he's in Jerusalem. He's been through an intense trial and grooming period. We've seen that in David's life, God calls him to be king, but he's just a kid when God calls him to be king. God lets us in on, and he lets David in on through the prophet Samuel, lets him in on the fact that, hey, guess what? You're anointed. My plan for you is, is to make you king, but it doesn't happen overnight. David has to go through trials and and temptations and circumstances and all of these things meant to refine him and shape and prepare him for the kingdom. And finally, now at long last, he's in Jerusalem and he has peace on every side. And that's not to infer that the enemies have been completely subdued because they haven't, but they're sufficiently conquered and held at bay to where David now in Jerusalem as he's sitting there and he's sitting in this beautiful house of cedar, very expensive dwelling, given to him by the king of Tyre. And so there he is sitting in this place. He's brought the Ark of the Covenant back into into Jerusalem. But the Ark is in the tabernacle, which is, you know, a fancy name for a tent. It's in a tent in Jerusalem. And David's sitting there, maybe on a rainy night. Who knows? But he's going, well, God's been so good to me. This is so awesome. And the Ark of God's out there in the tent. The presence of God, it's out there in a tent. Now, you know, it's bigger. David understands God dwells in heaven the whole bit, but you get the idea. And so David's heart is, I want to build the tabernacle for God, or the, you know, the temple for God. And, and so this is his great desire. Now God tells him no. And he, he basically explains to David that, hey, I made you to be a shepherd. What do, what do shepherds do? They tend sheep. They lead them through dangerous cher- territory in search of pasture. And along the way, they fight predators. And God telling David, look, that's your duty. I've called you to be a shepherd. And, and the unique calling and gifting of your life is to be a shepherd and to shepherd my people and to, to, to take them through that. I didn't call you to build a temple. I called you to shepherd and protect my people. And, and so God tells David, look, I know your desire, and it's a great desire. It's awesome. But you know what? You're not going to build the temple. Your son's going to build the temple. You, my friend, you're going to be used to defeat the enemy, to clear the path, to make sure that your son, a man of peace, because you're a man of war, you got blood on your hands. Well, your job, continue to just clear the way, man. Make the, make the area so that, so make it clear so that your son... He can be a man of peace and he can be that person to be able to, to, to build the temple. Uh, great desire, but that's not your duty. David, your duty is to clear the way. 
And God goes on, he says, now let me tell you about your destiny, man. I'm going to build you a house. You want to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. Your son's going to serve me, and you're gonna, your descendants are going to be on the throne of David. And guess what? The Messiah is going to be your descendant. And so having now entered into this covenant with God, where David understands, you know, gosh, this is God's plan for my life. This is his will for my life. This is the whole experience of 2 Samuel chapter 7, this beautiful revelation from God that says, I love your heart and everything, but let me just tell you who you are and who you're going to be and what I'm going to do in your life. And David gets that picture. And now what you're seeing here in chapter 8 is the power of purpose in a man's life. What you're seeing is a guy who's living on purpose because he's, he's able to now get what God's doing in his life and now he's able to, to channel all his efforts into a singular focus. He has that light of revelation that's been given to him and now he has this laser focus of, all right, that's my job. My job is to clear the land, make the, get everything ready. My son's going to build the temple. God's going to use my, king, my throne. He's going to establish my throne and the Messiah's going to come in my lineage. Let's get at it. Let's get busy. Let's get on it. And so he's a man who's living his life on purpose. Why? Because he's had a big light bulb moment in his life. All right, I get it. This is who I am. This is where I'm going. My job is to secure the land, to clear the way for building the temple. And so David gets, man, if I faithfully do my part, then I'm part of God's bigger plan to establish the throne and to bring the Messiah. David has a much bigger vision now. The story's told of a couple of guys that are working in a rock quarry. And uh, the one guy's got a lousy attitude and he's got minimal output. And the other guy has a great attitude and he's working at a high level of production. And so a guy goes up to him and he asks the first guy, the guy with a lousy attitude and all, he's like, what are you doing? And the guy says, I'm just making little blocks out of these big stones. That's what I'm doing. My job here is just to beat away at the stone, make these little blocks, and, and I work, you know, from, from sunup to sundown, and when it's quitting time, I, I just get the heck out of here. That's my job. Okay, goes to the second guy, he says, what's your job? He says, I'm, I'm building a temple. I'm building a magnificent, glorious temple. I take this big stone and I chisel these, these little blocks and fine craftsmen come and they take these blocks and they assemble them and they put them together with great skill. And at the end of the day, there's a beautiful temple that has been built, a, a beautiful dwelling place has been established, a beautiful house of worship for God. You see, two different men both of them coming from a completely different place. One of them had a very good scheme and picture of what it is. What's my purpose? What am I doing here? Another one, not so much. I'm just chopping at blocks. Might be a good idea right now for you in this time of the message to go, and do I have a clear picture about, you know, what God wants to do with me? Big questions that people deal with in life. Who am I? Where do I come from? Why am I here? Where, do I, where am I going? You know, people, these are the big questions of life. Many people go through life, you know, not, not realizing that. People make things happen. People watch things happen. People ask what happened. There's a lot of people asking what happened. Maybe that's you today in, in the service. You're, you're here, you're, you're wondering, I don't, what's it all about? Maybe even you're, you're hearing, you know, gosh, Ted, I, I hear David, you know, great. I would love what David had. 
David had a face-to-face with God, and God told him what he was going to do in his life. I've been asking that question for a long time. God, what is it you want to do? Can I remind you that David went through incredible trials and testing? Can I remind you that David was put through the meat grinder of life? And God will do that, and it's not because he doesn't love you. It's because he's fashioning you for the work that he's called you to. And David humbly submitted to the Lord just through that. Now, he had his times of doubt. He had his times of trial. You will have your times of doubt. You will have your times of trial. But David, in, in just humbly seeking the Lord, God brought him to the place to where one day, as he just trusts by God, day by day, one foot in front of the other, just to acknowledge the Lord, one day God turns the light bulb on and he goes, I get it. This is what God's made me for. What has God made you for? So it's after this, as we read in verse 8, after this, after God does this great work in David's heart and, and arms him with a clear vision, David now goes on the attack. And so we continue, after this came to pass, David attacked the Philistines, he subdued them, he took uh, Gath uh, from the hand of of the Philistines, verse 2, and then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line, with two lines he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, uh, those to be kept alive, and so the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadazer, uh, the son of Rehob, uh, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates, David uh, took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all of the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. You're like, what's up with that? When you hamstring a horse, basically you cut a little tendon in the, in the horse's uh, leg so that it, it's no longer fit to pull a chariot. And you say, well, that's incredibly cruel. Well, what David is doing here is actually obeying God because God had made it very clear in Deuteronomy chapter 17 that kings were not to multiply horses and chariots to themselves. And there's a couple of good reasons for that. One was because they, to, in order to get these horses and chariots, they had to go to other nations. They didn't have them readily available locally, and so they would have to interact with other nations to do that. The Bible says, be not deceived, bad company corrupts good character. And God is like, look, I, I don't want you hanging out with those people. You parents get that? There's kids in your neighborhood. You're like, yeah, them? No, you're not going to hang out with them. All right? And so God's like, I don't want you having to go to these other nations because they're going to rub off on you in a bad way, and I don't want that. But a bigger reason why God had told them not to multiply horses and chariots themselves is because he didn't want them trusting in the implements of warfare. He didn't want them trusting in their stuff. He didn't want them trusting in you know, their, their physical abilities. He wanted them to trust in him. God wanted them to trust him. And so David here, he's being obedient to, I mean, he could have he slaughtered the horses. You know, they could, they could have been having, you know, <laughs> jack-in-the-box tacos for, for a bunch of days there with, you know. No, he just hamstrung the horses is what happens. Verse 5, but when the Syrians of Damascus came to help uh, Hadezer, uh, king of Jobah, king, uh, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. I mean, 
This isn't modern warfare. This is hand-to-hand combat. I mean, this is Chuck Norris kind of stuff. Chuck Norris is, you know, it's, you've heard the saying, you cut, it's like a hot knife through butter. Chuck Norris is, you know, butter that cuts through a hot knife, you know, kind of thing. If you go to the Chuck Norris website and gives you all the stats on, you know, all that Chuck Norris does, you know. And, and so he doesn't get charged for attempted murder because if he was trying to murder you, he'd be dead, you know, kind of stuff. So this is David. He's just, he and the Israelites are incredibly empowered. And remember, and here's what you got to keep in mind. These are all the enemies that have surrounded them that up until this point, they haven't dealt with like they should be. And so here he does this thing. It's, it's, it's incredible. Verse 6, Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. And so the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And certainly that's the key part of the whole account there, is that God preserved him wherever he went. Now, up until now, and here's what I want you to get, almost all of their interaction with the enemy has been defensive, it hasn't been offensive, okay? First um, Samuel, chapter 4, chapter 7, 11, 13, 14, 17, 23, 29. Israel is constantly having these battle skirmishes with the players here that have been listed that David finally went out and attacked aggressively, proactively, right? But up until that point, it's all been defensive. Every time they're on defense, now it's an offensive attack. David's taken the fight to them. And will you notice, he attacks the Philistines to the west. He attacks the Moabites to the east. He attacks the Syrians to the north. And he attacks the Edomites to the south. Right? In other words, he attacked his enemies on every single side. Now, what changed in David's life? It's the power of purpose. See, Israel up until this point, I and mean, when Saul's running the show and everything, they're just sort of content to, to let their enemies lurk in the shadows. When they're, when they're attacked, they'll repel the attack, but, they won't, they, but they're not pressing the attack. And so all the while, the enemies, they're lurking in the shadows. And so what's happening here is that David's heard from God and he's cleaning house. He's like, look, I know what God's called me to do. I'm not going to live passively. I'm not going to live reactively. I'm not going to let my enemies lurk in the shadows. I'm getting to it. God had given him promise. He'd given him purpose. And now he's a man on a mission. Question for you and for me is to take a walk with this because as usual, David and his enemies serve as an example to us. And, And the idea here for us is to go, am I letting my enemies sort of live at the periphery? Am I living a life that's reactionary? Am I, always, am I being attacked and, and my efforts go towards maybe repelling the attack, but I'm not going on the advance? I'm not, I'm not being aggressively going after my enemies. And think about it. You know, who is Gath? Who do they rec- represent? They're the, to the west. Gath is the hometown of, of uh, you know, the, the, it's the capital city of the Philistines. It's the hometown for Goliath. And Gath, in our lives, it represents the giants in our life that we face. And we all have giants that we face in our life. You come to church today, maybe you got some giant that you're battling with. And everybody, you know, dealing with giants. I got bills I can't pay. I got more month than money. You know, I got, I got sin that I can't seem to conquer. 
you know, uh, whatever. I'm going through some huge faith thing or I got to trust God to show up because it's so big, the thing that I'm facing. And so, so this is one of these enemies that, that is at the periphery of Israel's life, always repelling but not going on the, on the offense against. Another one of the enemies they face are the Moabites to the east. Now, the Moabites are descendants of an, of an incestuous relationship that Lot had with one of his daughters. And you remember the story, basically, you know, they, they escape, there's this big destruction, and their daughters are thinking, well, gosh, we're, you know, we're not going to have any descendants, we're never going to have any kids, so what do they do? They get their dad drunk so that they can go in and, and have sex with them and have children. And, and so these are the Moabites, and, and the, 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 the figuratively, what they represent in our life is sexual sin. And, and maybe today, you know, you've got, you've had battle skirmishes, again, you know, trying to remain pure. You've had sexual sin that you've been dealing with. And, 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 and have you gone, you know, aggressively attacking this sin in your life? Or is it always reactionary? Is it always just something that you're repelling? And is it there in the periphery? It's always there, just in the periphery. Not something that you've gone on the offensive to go and attack, but it's something that you react to. Something that, that is constantly just this enemy just waiting to devour you. Again, you look at the Edomites. They're to the south of Israel and they're descendants of Esau. And, and, and what's the story there? Here you got a guy who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. And the, 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 the thing is they represent our sinful flesh. Paul, he, he lamented, he said, that that I want to do, I don't do. That that I don't want to do, that's what I do. Who's going to save me from this body of death? Jesus is who's going to save you from this body of death. And so for, for David, it, we, you know, we've, we've got the Edomites to the south, and you know what? Yeah, they attack, we repel them, but you know what? We haven't gone on, on the offense with them. We haven't said, you know what? Enough. Enough of the flesh. I'm, I'm not going to live a reactionary life anymore. I'm not going to live like a victim who's, oh, we're being attacked again. I'm overwhelmed. How you doing, man? I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging on by a thread, man. It's, you know, maybe it's time to get aggressive. Maybe it's time to fight against this thing. You know, I'm reminded Jesus in the wilderness. Remember when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness? Satan's, you know, full court, full court press, just tempting Jesus, tempting Jesus, tempting Jesus. Jesus refutes the temptations. And after this whole exchange there, what happens is we're told that Satan left him for an opportune time. And, and he does the exact same thing in our lives. When the enemy's there at the periphery of our life and then they attack and maybe we'll repel that attack, you know, and, and then all of a sudden he'll leave us but he's there at the fringe just waiting for an opportune time. And, and you think about Jesus. Jesus in that moment when Satan left him for an opportune time, Jesus hadn't fully defeated Satan yet. He, he was going to, and make no mistake, he absolutely did. But at that moment in time, he won the, he won the skirmish, he won the battle, but he hadn't won the war yet. Satan left him for an opportune time, comes back. His opportune time was to attack him in his crucifixion. That was Satan's opportune time. Now, Satan thought, okay, Google, I got him. And it, but he and the disciples didn't realize what God was doing. You know, the Bible says what the, what the enemy intends for evil, God will work together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. And just, a, just a quick time out from the direction we're going on the message here, just for me to say this, that Jesus came to pay 
a debt that you have that you could never repay. You know, people ask the question, say, well, gosh, how, how could a loving God send people to hell? Can I tell you, God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves to hell. Because here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God loves you desperately. The, God, the Bible teaches that God's love for you is so incredible that while we are yet sinners, spitting in God's face, running headlong into doing whatever we can do that is, that is so heinous to God, Jesus Christ died for you. And the Bible teaches that if we confess our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe today that's you. Maybe today you come into church today and maybe there's sin in your life and maybe there's guilt and shame that you, that you have here in church. If I ask you, you know, do you have peace with God? You might answer, no, I don't. Harrison Ford, in an interview, he says, you always want what you ain't got. They're like, dude, you're an actor, you're a millionaire, you're a movie star, what ain't you got? Peace. Do you have peace today? Because you can, you can have peace with God today. And and, and it doesn't matter what you've done, if you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of the living God, that he died on the cross for your sin in your place, and if you will believe that God loves you, and that he sent Christ for you. And, and, and you know, it's not a matter of, oh, hey, you gotta clean up your life. It's not a matter of, oh, I've done too much and you know, I gotta kinda you know, grease the skids there and kinda you know, do something so that I can get at least my foot in the, no, no. It's a matter of saying, God, I need a savior. I believe you're the savior and I believe you're gracious and loving. Today, you can, you can receive Christ. You can be saved. You can be born again. You, you, you can ask the Lord, Lord, take away my sin. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. The enemy's always there in the periphery. For those of you that have never surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, the enemy in the periphery of your life is that, man, what your life looks like is that the hits just keep on coming. It's like, well, why, you know, I'm just experiencing, I, the stuff that I look to, it just doesn't satisfy relationships don't satisfy. Money doesn't satisfy. Nothing seems to satisfy. I still got this great longing, this great, what is it? Why can't I get a handle on this? It's because the enemy, you're surrounded. Now, some of you, your issue is you're, you're like the Israelites in the sense that, hey, man, I believe in Christ. I, I've, I've surrendered my life to him. I've invited him in. And, and, I, and, I, and I do, I have victory. And, and maybe even today you go, oh, I'm in a place of relative peace. I have, you know, victories in my areas of my life. Yeah, but have you gone on the offensive to take care of the stuff on the periphery? Paul was writing to the Romans in Romans 13. He said this, he warned them, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. What does it mean to make a provision for the flesh? I illustrate it this way, fresh off of uh, grandparent patrol last night at 2 o'clock in the morning. When, when, when you're first married and you want to, like, you know, go out with, with, with your spouse, it's not a big deal. It's like, hey, let's go out. Cool, grab your purse. We get in, we go, we go to the restaurant, we park the car, we get out of the car, you know. I mean, you go to the store, guess what? Hey, we, we can both go in. My wife and I recently went to the store. We go there and I'm like, we can both go in. 
We, we, don't, have a, we don't have our kids. We don't have our eight grandchildren. We, 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 let's both go in. But you, so you can do that when you first marry. Now, you have a kid. You throw a kid in the mix. You ain't both going in. You know, you, you, you can't just go, oh, hey, let's go, you know, down to the, no, you got to, there's some planning, there's some, there's some logistics, right? You have to make provisions. You have to have, you know, do we have the stroller? Do we have the diaper bag? Do we have diapers? Do we have wipes? Do we have pacifier? Do we have two pacifiers? Because they're going to drop one inevitably. Do we have bottles? Do we have formula? Do we have a burp cloth? Do we have a change of clothes because they are going to blow out? I mean, kids, it's like crazy. It's like, holy, you know what? Just find a trash can and throw the outfit out, okay? And while you're at it, find a fire hose and let's just wash this kid off. It's like, what did you eat, you know? And so you have to make provisions for the, 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 that whole thing. Well, what Paul's saying, you know, to the Romans is people do this for sin. We make provisions for sin. Now, sometimes the provisions that we make for sin is a little more overt. It's kind of like, well, oh, that's, my, that's my gambling money. That's my Vegas money. That's my weekend away when I'm going to Vegas with the guys. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Sometimes we make provisions very overtly in that way. But you know what? Sometimes the provisions that we make for sin, they're, 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 they're not a huge overt kind of action. Sometimes, well, it's, it's less obvious. Sometimes it's more subtle. You know, and, and here's what happens basically when you, a way that, one of the ways that you make provisions for, for sin is that you live a reactive faith instead of a proactive faith. A reactive faith instead of a proactive faith. And you, ne- you never really go on the offensive against the enemy in your life. You just sort of tolerate him around the edges and your whole life is just sort of reacting to his attacks as he comes. And in so doing, what you're doing is you're actually making a provision for the flesh. Now, I can always tell reactive Christians. Because a reactive Christian typically is somebody that's very busy with a lot of different things that have nothing to do with God. A reactive Christian, by and large, is a person where spiritual growth isn't a top priority in their life. And so you don't make time for the word, you don't make time for prayer, you don't make time to grow in your faith, and then what happens is that you've allowed the enemy to be at the periphery. You're saved, but everything's a reaction. There's nothing proactive, there's nothing to go on the offensive, it's all defensive, and so then what happens is your life is characterized by the enemy attacks, everything in your life hits the fan, and then you start blowing my phone up. Now, here's the thing. Call me. I, that's great. Seriously, call me all day long. I pray you hit something hard and come to the place to where you go, help Cecil, help. God, I've made a mess of my life. And, and, and that's cool. I love that. But I don't want to be the guy that just sort of helps you to react to the latest battle so you can continue living a reactive faith. We're called to live a proactive faith, to go on the attack against the enemy. What I want to see you do is to say, okay, you know what? Like David, I'm in Jerusalem. I'm living in relative peace. God has been great to me. And we got all the enemies at bay. But you know what? Guess what? Now I got to put my foot to the floor. I got to start attacking. They're not attacking now, but they're going to attack in the future. So I got to deal with them now. And I'm going to get serious about my walk. And this is what I want for all of us is that we would go, okay, I need to start getting serious about where I'm at with God. Where are you at with God? 
Now, are, are you on the attack as it pertains to growing in your faith, reading the word, being in prayer, being in Bible study, doing the things that you can grow, you know, in, a, in an aggressive way? Or is your life one of reaction? The hits just keep on coming. The enemy's just sort of at bay today, but I have no idea what he's going to do tomorrow because I'm too busy with this thing over here. Jesus told the parable of, well, it's called the parable of the seeds, but it's more about the soil, really. There's different guys, you know, the guy cast out seed, it landed on different soil. And he said this, Matthew chapter 13, verse 22, he said, Now he who receives seed among the thorns, as he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. I wonder, you know, does that fit a reactive Christian? Somebody that's sort of concerned with a lot of different things, not really ever going on the offensive. I just, I'm just curious what describes your situation right now. Because you're either on the offensive against the enemy or you're surrounded and just reacting to the enemy's attacks. Well, not only did the purposeful focus on God's plan affect David's walk, it also affected his worship. Notice in verse 7, we continue. And David took the shields of gold. Uh, the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Also from Batah and from uh, Barothal, uh, the, Barothal, the city uh, of uh, Hadadezer, King David took a large amount of bronze. And when Toil, the king of uh, when Toy, the king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, then Toy sent uh, Jerome, Jerome, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had been at war with Toy. And Jerome brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had uh, subdued. From Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Jobah. Now, David brings gold, he brings the silver, he brings the bronze to Jerusalem. And as you read through the Bible and you get some harmony of, the, of what's happening here in 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and so on, and, and as you read through 1 Kings, what you realize is that silver was, or the gold was so much, so plentifully brought so much gold in that silver was actually counted as nothing. One, one account says that silver was actually accounted as rocks because they had so much gold. You know, um, you know, it would be the equivalent of in the 20s, guys lighting cigars with $100 bills. It was, you know, there's just so much gold. It's silver's like nothing. And it, it also tells us, as we read about David and his own personal behavior in terms of his worship of God, that out of his own money, he gave the modern equivalent of over $300 million worth the gold. Now you, you might be sitting here and you're like, oh, I see where you're going with this. And you're going to sit, you're going to go to, after my purse, Pastor Ted. You're going after my wallet, Pastor Ted. No, I'm not. It has nothing to do with that. So just be cool. You can listen to what I'm going to say. 
what I, what I want you to see is that David, having the light bulb turned on and God sharing with him and saying, look, David, here's my plan. Here's I'm going to use you. Here's what I'm going to do. And I give you an invitation. You can join me in what I'm doing or not. And David's like, I am all in. And so it affected not only his work, but it affected his worship. And so David got to the place to where he dedicated to the Lord. And this is so important. The Holy Spirit repeats it twice uses the word dedicate twice. Now that word dedicated, here's what it means. It means to set apart and treat as sacred. So, so David takes the gold, he takes the silver, he takes the bronze, he sets it apart and he treats it as sacred. Now listen, the gold wasn't sacred, the silver wasn't sacred, the bronze wasn't sacred. Here's what was sacred, and you can't miss this, how he got it was sacred. Okay, so he's setting these things apart as sacred, not because in and of themselves the money is sacred. It's how he got it that's sacred. And how did he get it? He got it, and David understood that every victory, every blessing was from God. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. And that phrase, shadow of turning, it's like this, is that when my shadow is cast, it basically is a, is a message of what's to come. Okay, so if, if my shadow is coming down, it's a message that, that, there's a, that there's a hit coming, that there is something following it up. And so the idea is with God that there's no shadow of turning. It's like there's not even a hint that he's going to forsake you. There's not even a hint that something is coming down the road where he's going to bail on you. Every good and every perfect gift is from the Father of lights who not for a second is thinking about forsaking you. He wants to care for you. And this is where David's at. He's at the place where he recognizes that God is good and he's faithful and he's awesome. And guess what? I wanted to go, I wanted to build a house and this is what I want to do for you. And God says, now look, David, you just focus on what I've called you to do. And guess what? I'm building you a house, man. I'm taking care of you. I got, I got plans for you. I, you cannot outgive me, David. You can't outbless me. Maybe you remember Nabal when we were going through 1 Samuel. And uh, Nabal's this guy in 1 Samuel 25. His name means fool, by the way. So that tells you right out the gate, you know, who names their kid that? Oh, there he is. What do you want to name him? He's a fool. Let's just name him that. Well, he lives up to his name. He was absolutely a fool. And uh, enables a guy who, he lives his life, he's got, a, he's got a major eye problem. His eye problem is, I have done this. I have built this. I am great. I am awesome. And maybe you guys, you work with somebody like that, you know? They have an eye problem. I don't know, maybe you have an eye problem. But, but Nabal, the Bible tells us he's harsh and evil in his doings. He's incredibly self-focused. And what happens is that David, he's in a time where he's on the run from Saul. He goes to, sends a couple of his guys to Nabal, and he says, hey, go, uh, it's shearing time. Nabal's, you know, rich dude. He's got all these sheep. He's going to, you know, have the sheep sheared. It's payday, basically. So it's the equivalent of the farmer at, at, at harvesting time. So he's got his flocks, and he's going to shear them. He's going to get paid. And would you go tell him, hey, look, um, We'd, we'd, we'd love whatever you could do to help us out. We're out here. We could use some food. We could use some provision. And, uh, and remind him, hey, you know what? We took care of you. You ask your shepherds, man, that you, know, you, you don't live in the greatest neighborhood. 
There are a lot of people looking to rip you off. You didn't lose anything because we were there. We watched over, we guarded, we protected. And, um, and Nabal basically says, who are you? I, I'm great. I've got all this stuff. These are all my sheep. What the heck are you got? I'm not giving you anything. And his shepherds are freaking out. They're like, what they're saying is true. He totally took care of us. They go running to his wife. This guy's going to get us all killed. Because these guys were, David was totally good to us. He and his men, they watched over. Everything that he says is absolutely true. And, and Nabal, he doesn't care. He has no regard for the fact that, that what he's got, basically, is a gift from David. And he completely ignores, completely you know, blows David off. He's completely unwilling to share with him. So what's happening here is that David's in a place where, you know, it's not that the gold is, is so special. It's how he got the gold, who he got the gold from. And he's like, Lord, I just want to, I want to worship you with this. And Jesus told a parable in Luke's gospel about a rich man. And this rich man, he's going to rip down all of his barns because he's got so much stuff. He needs place for more of his stuff. And, and Jesus says, and I will say to my soul, he's speaking of what this rich man is saying in his heart, soul, you, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And then whose will be those things which you have provided? And so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. How do you live? Do you have an eye infection? Do you forget who it is who has provided you, cared for you, been with you all these times where your victories come from? Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that's what God wants is your heart. Does he have your heart today? He wants your heart. And when you have a clear focus on God's plan, when you get that God says, look, you want to build me a temple, cool, but look, I'm going to build you a house. I want to care for you. I'm going to show you how you fit in my plan, and I'm going to give you an invitation to join me in, in the work that I'm doing. Man, when you get that, everything in your life is an opportunity to worship. And this is what David understood. Everything in my life, it's an opportunity to worship. It's all an opportunity to worship. I think of the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. And so David's got a purposeful focus on God's plan and, and it affects his walk, it affects his worship. And I want to conclude here very quickly just looking at David's witness and his wardship. We see first his witness in verse 13. It says, And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. There's a lot we could say about this. I just have one point of application. I'll put it on the screen for you. I ask you to write it down. Take a walk with it this week. Here it is. What name have I made for myself? Can you write that down? Maybe ask your, your heart that question prayerfully. What, what name have I made, myself, made, made of myself? See, because here's the deal. You're going to make yourself a name. You will. Absolutely. You already have. 
The question isn't, will you make yourself a name? It's, what name will you make for yourself? Are you a hothead? Or are you patient? Are you loving and tender? Or are you harsh? Are you a cheater? Or are you faithful? Are you dependable? Or are you unreliable? See, you make a name for yourself. It's just a matter of what it is. So, So here we, we've got David. He gets a glimpse of what God's called him to do, and, and he's hot on it. He's following after the Lord. He's, he's seeking first his kingdom, his righteousness, trusting God when his promises, all these other things will be added unto you as well. He just gets it. This is what I'm to do. And in the process of doing that, he makes a name for himself. In the process of you putting God first, in the process of you joining God in the work that he's invited you to do, you'll make a name for yourself. And maybe, just maybe, if you honestly answer that question, take a walk with it, and you go, you know what, the name that I've made for myself is a horrible name, and I, and I, I despise it, I'm ashamed of it. Listen, God allows you to repent. God can change your name. Maybe today, the name that, that you might have made for yourself is hopeless. I'm, a, I'm in a dead end. There's, I, I just have no hope. I have no peace. I have no joy. That can all change. And it all changes when, when you just put the Lord in his rightful place and seek him and just surrender to him. It all changes when you say, you know what? Enough of mediocre living. Enough of just barely getting by living. Enough of treating Jesus like, you know, he's the genie in my life and I just run to him when I got the three wishes. Enough of the, he's the spare tire in my trunk that I pull out when I got a flat. Enough of treating God like, hey, you know what? I could use a handy guy like you around to build my kingdom, God. You're, hey, come on, man. Give me patience. Give me provision. Give me, you know, some strength when I need it. Bless my business when I need it. God's like, I'm not interested in that deal. I just let you see it's hit something hard and come to the place where you recognize that it's my kingdom that you need. It's not your kingdom that you need. Maybe you've made a name for yourself or it's got the brand of your kingdom on it and it stinks to high heaven. And you can cry out to the Lord today and you can ask him to change all that. So God gives David this glimpse and David is hot on it. And, and finally, what does it affect? It affects his wardship. It's an old-fashioned name. What's it mean? It means David's responsible for stuff and he t- how's he going to take care of it? It's kind of like stewardship. Well, well, you know, what, what is it that, that happens in David's life? Well, we read in verse 14, he also put garrisons in Edom throughout all Edom. He put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And so David reigned over all Israel and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. And Joab the son of Zariah was uh, over the army and Jehoshaphat the son of uh, uh, Ahilad was recorder. And, and Zadok the son of Ahitub and uh, 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 Ahimelech the son of Abathar were the priests. Sariah was the scribe. Benaniah, the son of Jehodiah, was over both the, the Chetherites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers. And you're like, okay, what is, what's all that about? Here's what that's about. And I'll just start with the application and work my way backwards, okay? Here's the application. 
for you in your life if you will recognize that God has a plan and a purpose and he's called you to walk in accordance with his will according to his plan and according to his purpose, what that's going to require in your life is that you have some administration in your life. And what I recommend people to do on a regular basis is, listen, there's this concept of reverse engineering. It's worth a try. You know, the Chinese ripped off one of our, one of our drones, it, you know, crashed in, in Iran. They got it. They sold it to China. And they're using all of our stealth technology to build, you know, some radical stealth stuff. Why? Well, because they took a finished product, some benefit that, that we had done all the research and development of. And now what they do is they just take that and they reverse engineer it. And so in your life as a Christian, what you can do is you can go, hey, look, God, give me a glimpse of what, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What do you want to do in my life? What are you inviting me to do in my life? And when God gives you that light bulb, then you can go, okay, it's this. Well, now what you can do is you can begin to administrate your life and you can begin to order things in such a way that you go, okay, this is what I'm called to do and so this is what I should be doing today and this is what I should be doing tomorrow and these are the systems and the structures that I should put in place. Now, I'll give you an example here at the church. We do that. When we first started out, we were tiny. There was four of us in my living room when we first started out. And so not a lot to coordinate, not a lot to administrate. It's like, you know, call the other couple. Hey, uh, you know, want to get together tomorrow? Okay, cool. We'll see you tomorrow. Five? No? Six? Cool. See you tomorrow at six. I can't do that with y'all today, Okay. And, and what happens is that people, they'll, they'll come to church and they'll see, you know, a bigger church like ours and they see, they're, they're like, oh, you know what, there's, there's systems and there's processes and there's procedures and there's forms and you know what, and they'll make it out to be like, oh, it's just a business, it's not spiritual. Like if all of that structure wasn't there, you know, it might be more godly. And people who actually have that and ha- that opinion have said that to us. It's like, you know, oh, what, you're, it's, why has it got to be all systems and processes and policies and procedures? Well, here's why. Think about your family. I go back to the example, you and your spouse. Want to go out to dinner? Cool. Add some kids to the mix. Watch how much order and structure your family starts to need to have. It's like we got to now start having bedtime. Now we got to start, we got to make doctor's appointments and now we got to coordinate everything. It's like, hey, you want to go out to eat? Yeah, that would have been good information three days ago. You know what I mean? And so we get it in our families, but somehow we don't get it in, in the church. We don't, we don't make the connection. So here's the point. We close on this, this deal. God has a plan and a purpose for you. We hear that all the time, but he does. And, and if you will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and go, okay, God, what is it? Give me, show me what you've called me to do, who you've called me to be. What happens then is your life should change. You should begin to live a proactive life, not a reactive life. You should begin to have advances that you're making against the enemy. You should begin to be a person that has some breakthroughs. and some, your, your life shouldn't look like at any moment all the wheels are going to come off the bus. And you can experience that if you will just put the Lord first.